Welcome back to the All About Audiology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lilach Saperstein, and in this episode, we're going to be talking all about cochlear implants. As you know, the reason I'm making this show is to spread information and support and guidance around everything that has to do with your journey in audiology, hearing, hearing loss, hearing aids, cochlear implants, sign language. What are the decisions that need to be made when you get a diagnosis or someone you know is dealing with a hearing loss or navigating any of this? So the reason I'm making this episode is because there are so many myths about cochlear implants out there and just misinformation and things that people don't really understand about the whole process. So today I have invited Valley Gideons from mybattlecall.com, a mother of two children who have cochlear implants, who's a writer, who's an advocate, who talks a lot about their journey. I've invited her onto the show to share some of that with us. And I've also included in the show notes a link to an article that I've written about the common myths and misconceptions around cochlear implants, such as cochlear implants restore hearing and cure deafness. Cochlear implants are easy to use. Cochlear implants will work instantaneously like flipping on a magic switch. I'm very passionate about this topic and spreading the information to the people who need to hear it. So if you are making a decision for yourself or for your child or a loved one about the cochlear implant, it's really important to be empowered. That means that you know what is coming, that you have information about the process, and that you can be a really good advocate for yourself or your child. So you can go and read that article on the blog at allaboutaudiology.com, and in the show notes, you'll have a link to that. So let's jump into the interview with Valley Gideons. Valley Gideons is a military bride who writes about raising kids with hearing loss, military life, and other stories from the heart. She has a degree in journalism and wrote her first short story in second grade. She's co-written a children's book with her 12-year-old daughter about their hearing loss journey and is looking to get it published. You can find her on mybattlecall.com and on Facebook and Instagram on the same name, mybattlecall. So welcome, Valley. Welcome, Valley, to the All About Audiology podcast. I'm so glad you're here. You have a lot of experience to share and a lot of words of wisdom. So um, why don't you start by introducing yourself? Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. My name is Valley Gideons, and I'm a mother of two children with cochlear implants. I'm an advocate, a writer, and I'm married to a career Marine. So I'm also a military bride, and I write about the perspective of raising children also with special needs, but in a military family, which is kind of unique. Wow. So lots of different moving parts and challenges. Moving being a key word. <laughs> yeah. How many places have you lived? So we're getting ready to celebrate our 24th year of marriage and we've moved 10 times. Nice. Nice average. <laughs> yeah. So my children have moved, I think we counted six. So we'd love to hear about your children and their journey. Okay. Well, my son is 14 now. So without going into too much history, I'll just say when he was born, uh, he failed the infant hearing screening. And like most parents, this is pretty typical apparently. I didn't know it at the time, but we were told it was probably just fluid in his ear canal. 
So we took this little bundle home and spent two weeks just trying to keep him alive, right? Burping, sleeping, mm-hmm. changing, all the things that any new parent is trying to accomplish, sleep deprived, all of it. And we had to go back two weeks later for his follow-up ABR, not prepared at all for what we would be told. We didn't have family history. I had never met a person deaf or hard of hearing, believe it or not. So he failed. We were taken into that cold room no parent wants to be invited into and told, your son has severe to profound hearing loss and he'll probably need hearing aids or get a cochlear implant, go to mainstream high school, blah, 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 blah. And literally, I, I heard high school and they lost me. I'm like, what? I have a two-week-old in my arms and now I'm being given information mm-hmm. about where he'll go to high school. Um, we changed doctors. After that, we pivoted because I didn't think I was going to really trust yeah. being in the care of this particular facility that was so abrupt in how they gave parents this information. So I'm not going to name the hospital, but we were very uh, blessed to go to another very large clinic. And there's when we met our ENT, our geneticist, our audiologist, our auditory verbal therapist, all the, the dream team. So when you had that really rude kind of abrupt conversation where they're just not with a lot of empathy or compassion giving you this news. Um, First of all, what was your reaction? How did you take that? And second of all, after that, how were you able to say, Hey, I don't, I actually don't like the way we're being treated here. And where did you get that strength to say, I'm going to seek care elsewhere. As I know that a lot of people in that state maybe would not have been able to make that decision. So. I'm interested in that strength, where that comes from. I think my husband and I are a pretty strong, confident couple. He's a career Marine. He's a colonel now. So um, I think sticking up for ourselves or advocating for ourselves is not something that's very difficult. We were just lucky that we're kind of built that way. And we both walked to the car, bundling up our little baby, got him strapped in his car seat. And we both just sat down in the front seat and wept. And what were we just told? And we both looked at each other and said, we're not going back there. Mm. I've never actually really told the story of how that happened. It's funny that I've decided today to tell it, but like the abruptness of it, I, I guess I just felt like we're going to need empathy and support. And we're going to need somebody to not just treat this like it's no big deal because for two hearing parents, who had no family history, this is a lot to take in. It doesn't mean we're not going to accept it and we're not going to love our child, but I mean, we need some, you know, help here. And we were also lucky to live somewhere where there were options. Absolutely. It's really the power that comes from sharing. I know that you do a lot of writing and advocacy and you share a lot with many other parents and really have built a community around this that you don't need to be alone this isn't only yours, that there's something really powerful about coming together and supporting each other. I think many people will will relate to that just sheer overwhelm. I think also we were a little older. We had waited to have children because my husband had done so many deployments. So at the time, I didn't know that would turn out to be a blessing, that we were a little older and resourceful 
But this is before literally there was no Facebook. I mean, my son's 14. So it's not like we could just go online and join a support group. We had to go through interventionists, um, through the city, and our team of specialists, particularly our audiologists. I mean, audiologists are angels to me. I mean, literally what you guys do in our speech auditory verbal therapists, they were really the champions for us and educating us. And we just rolled our sleeves up and got to work. So with that being said, though, I think that's why I write to that new parent who's getting the diagnosis is, yes, you're going to roll your sleeves up and get to work, but there's also a period of time that it's okay to grieve. Feel the sadness, feel, feel it, because if you're not expecting it, it's, and it would be true for any parent that gets a diagnosis of anything out of the ordinary that you're not expecting. I think it's a universal feeling, right? That this is not what I thought it was going to be. And what is my child's life going to look like? We didn't really have any reference. And so that's another reason I feel it's really important to show my 12 and 14 year old children thriving. You're that mom or dad or parent holding that baby to be able to see what is possible. We didn't have that. We didn't have anything to look to at the time. And so I think that caused a lot more worry and angst. Which is kind of ironic because that maybe is what they were going for when they said, oh, by high school, you'll be mainstream, but they kind of skipped too many steps and didn't explain what they were talking about. Gifts. Right. Exactly. I mean, it was not exactly probably what he was saying. It was how he said it. So flippant. Yeah. And also that they would even say that as like, how can they promise that? How can they, they don't know what the outcomes are going to be. So very different than saying, here's what's been happening with our family to get a sense for other people. But well, I'm sorry you had to go through that really. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's okay. It gives me more um, empathy and understanding for others though because I know what it's like to have someone be not give you that compassion in the beginning. Mm -hmm. All right. So you found your dream team at this other hospital and what happened then? Did you go forward with the CI surgery? So we, at the time you have to remember back 14 years ago, they were not implanting children under the age of one. So it's been kind of cool to see how it's um, evolving the science got his hearing aids at three months. And so it was trips to the audiologist almost weekly because my son was the incredible growing child. He grew overnight. It was crazy. And with that came, you know, his ears growing. So, and this was before feedback managers on hearing aids. So we got to deal with the dreaded whistle, just thinking, is this as good as it gets? Okay. I guess this is just what it is, but it was pain. I mean, those First couple of months were painful with just managing, you know, a baby, an infant who's pretty much always laying on their side, pushing their heads against things and those, the whistle of those hearing aids. And then uh, we started working with an auditory verbal therapist who is happened to be one of the best in the country. He saw our son was smart. He could tell very early on. I think it's just so sweet that he saw that in our child, that he was just bright and alert and inquisitive. And we would work with him twice a week. And it was during that time he started speaking to us about what a cochlear implant was. And he didn't tell us we should do it, but he educated us so that we could make a decision that we thought would be best for our child. 
so at 14 months, he got his first implant. So what was that experience like for you? Well, let's see. I was pregnant with my daughter, so that was challenging to be pregnant and, and sending your baby off to surgery. You know, it's, I equate it to any parent I know that's child's had surgery. It's scary. We never questioned if we were doing the right thing, though. It was just a choice we made based on all the information we had and knowing our child. And so that wasn't the hard part. Recovering from surgery, you know, he had some complications. His incision got infected, nothing major, but it was things we weren't really prepared for. But once he was healed and got activated and words started to come, alerting to sound, you know, we didn't have that magic moment that you see. I write about that, the the magic moment, which, you know, we all love the videos. But again, I write about how that really is a disservice as much as we can celebrate the joy. And I mostly have the visceral reaction to those videos because I see the parents' joy, the parents' emotion. But for most of us, that is not the normal. The magic moments come after. For sure. I'm so glad you mentioned this and you brought this up because it's something that I really advocate for. A lot of education. When those videos go viral, they are delightful. Yes. (laughs) But when that's the only thing you know about a cochlear implant or, you know, about what audiologists do. (laughs) Right. A cochlear implant, it's the mapping, the sophistication of programming it and that it is not an exact science that you all have to be so good at reading the behaviors and all the things that come with that, that it's not just one size fits all, just turn on the on button and boom, they can hear. And I think even with family, some of our family members, I found that they did think it was going to be as simple as that. And again, that makes you as a parent feel not understood that this is really hard work for us. Yes. All the appointments and learning all the techniques to help help our child understand what this access to sound means. And it becomes a parenting style of sorts, the narration of life. But for the child, it's to understand that this is, it causes fatigue. It's a lot of information to process. It's a lot. I mean, my kids, even now, I'm in awe of them. Yes. I'm in awe of how hard they have to work and how they do it just so without a second thought, maybe because they don't know anything different, but they never complain. They never say, why me? This is just who they are. And they accept it. It, I'm just in awe of them. Well, I think it's a testament to the way you're saying you were able to come to terms with it, accept it, and then see, let's go. What's the action steps that, you know, you gave your kids a lot of those tools. So talk a little bit about that process and what you guys did to make it that your 14 and 12 year old don't complain, even though they're preteens and teenagers, which complain all day for everything. <laughs> well, they complain about a lot of things, just not their hearing. It's interesting because just yesterday in the car, my 12 year old, literally a piece of work. This, she's a special kid. She has a personality that's just infectious and like her zest for life. And she's getting ready to go into some school testing and they messaged me about, is she going to utilize her the extra time that she's permitted to have? And she goes, I don't need extra time. I don't want to be pulled out of class. And I said, let me explain to you like 
your audiologist has done, let me explain to you again how much harder your brain works. Your brain is having to work hard to hear, not just during testing, even though it's quiet during testing, but from the minute you wake up to the minute you go to bed, you're, you're working harder. And she's like, ah, oh, well, it's still lame. And that was about as much as complaining, like, I don't want to be pulled out because you know, only people who aren't smart get pulled out. I said, well, you know, that's not true. They go to a school that's highly academically focused and everybody there is high achievers. And even if that's not the case, being pulled out does not mean that. But it's now that teen tween age of not wanting to be different or attention brought on for reasons that they don't see it that way. They, I've just gone off on a tangent, but I think one of the things I would say about a teen and tween that's hard is now they want to act like they don't need the accommodation. And you're sitting here, I fought for this accommodation, so you're going to get them. <laughs> yes. And I think it's pretty typical of this age. I have uh, other moms I'm in touch with that have kids similar age. We share an audiologist, so we are, we've kind of become a little crew of uh, parents that exchange stories. And I'm hearing the similar thing. It's, it's just partly the age, but it just cracks me up because they just don't think, well, we don't need it. Like, Yes, you do. You don't know what you're missing because you're missing it. <laughs> and at any point, do they reject the actual equipment? It is not a problem now, but we did go through, and I've written about this because I think this one, it's one of the things I hear come up with parents of toddlers is the pulling off the device. And my son went through a stage where he was horrible pulling his implant off. And it wasn't because he didn't want it on. It just was cumbersome it would just go flying off and he would just keep on going. I mean, it was not negotiable for me. I would just put it right back on and it was never like used as a punishment. Like you will wear this. Never. We never made it a power struggle, but magic year goes on magic year. Then we do a little happy dance and try to make it like a positive experience. But sometimes it'd be a hundred times a day. And so then I would occasionally take a device timeout where I would put it up on the counter and not for him, but for me to give me 10 minutes where I didn't have to keep my eye on his hands going for his head. I mean, at that phase was in the grand scheme did not last that long, but at the time it seemed like it was never going to end. Wow. So you spoke about your son. So then your daughter came along. Had you done genetic testing? Did you have any thoughts about any expectations about your new baby? Yeah, so we did genetic testing. And again, the dream team happened to have one of the best geneticists to work with who um, did the CAT scan and saw the enlarged vestibular aqueduct. She could see the hair, I mean, literally the size of a hair enlarged. So she knew kind of what to look for in genetic testing. And so then we were able to identify the syndrome. And then we knew that she would have a 25% chance as a sibling, which I've discussed this before. I, at the time, I thought, well, most likely she'll be born hearing. Not really thinking one in four. I mean, those odds are pretty high that she also will have hearing loss. And we found out in utero because she was also having some markers to uh, present Down syndrome. So my son was going in for his implant surgery. Three days before, we found out that she was, it was looking like a probability of Down syndrome. So we ended up doing amnio because. If she has Down syndrome, again, roll up the sleeves. It'll be fine. But I need to know before she's born so we can prepare. 
because we'd already gone through that experiencing a diagnosis the opposite way. And so with that, they could do the genetic testing. So she came back negative for Down syndrome and then positive for hearing loss, the same syndrome. So I'm really glad it worked out that way because I grieved again, but I was able to grieve while she was still safely in my belly with no hearing devices or anything else like that to worry about. So I was able to kind of come to terms with, okay, here we go again. And I think at that point, it wasn't that I didn't think, you know, I could raise a happy, healthy baby with hearing loss. It was, I just knew how much work it was going to be. That was probably the part that I needed to process. We knew she had it, would have also have enlarged vestibular aqueduct. But the thing with that condition, as you know, hearing fluctuates, deteriorates. She was born with only a mild loss at first, but then it quickly shifted. And that was another challenge. I hear this from other parents too. Just the fluctuation is very challenging. And that was another reason implant just seemed like the best course of action because then the fluctuation just doesn't matter. My kids are very good at being tested. Like our audiologist loves them. She's been working with them now since they were one and three. No matter where we've moved because of my husband's job, we fly back to be with her because one, the continuity. Two, I'm from California, so it's a trip home. We understood quickly how important that mapping was. So it's almost like I I don't want anyone else touching my kids' devices. Yeah, and the mapping really requires numerous, numerous trips and fine tunes and readjustments and six months later again and annually after that. So it's like a long process to get it and it keeps changing, doesn't it? We go every, it was every three months for the longest time. Now it's three to six. And every time there's an adjustment made, my son keeps requiring more power. He's growing. I mean, he's still, he's out six feet tall. He's 14 size 12 feet. I mean, the kid, I guess with the surges of testosterone and everything else, it just changes the mapping as well with how much power is required. It's like clockwork. I'll start to get a lot of, huh, what? I go, oh boy, it's, we are overdue, aren't we? It's like, yep, it's time, make our appointment. Like clockwork. And to go back, how old was your daughter when she was implanted? So again, hearing aids at three months and because of her loss being not as severe, she got her first implant at 18 months. And again, it's just her speech was not progressing and she was missing some of the high frequencies. It was inevitable she was going to get an implant as well. So we wanted to do that. And at that point when she was 18 months or 16 months or whenever you did the testing, by then her hearing had gotten worse? Yes. Yeah. Yep. It had changed from mild to, I think, moderate, but still her speech sounds, it was clear she was missing. It's also about the quality of their transmission, not just the the volume. Yeah. Right. And we had seen just what a difference the implant had done for my son. So, I mean, we kind of knew she was going to get also get an implant. It was just a matter of when. And again, it's never easy to send your baby into surgery. So she's only unilateral. She only has one and she wears a hearing aid on the other side. Okay. So she's a bimodal superstar. (laughs) Yes. And she tests very well with both her ears. We call them ears. I know some people don't like that, but that is what our family uses. Our kids use it. Like, where are my ears? They know their ears are on their head, attached to their head. It's, they mean their devices. 
So they don't, you know, they don't say, where are my cochlear implants? We just don't, that's just not the language we use. But I know I've heard some people say, they're not your ears, they're your cochlear implants. I'm like, okay, you do you. I, I know people whose kids name their shoes. So it's right. 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 <laughs> we don't get caught up in, we don't get offended very easily either. I mean, we're just not taking a hard line. The only thing my husband and I decided early on, and we haven't really had, even with my kind of big platform of advocacy, haven't really run into too much of people trying to put their opinions and their, yeah, their opinions onto us as far as what we should do for our children, because we always knew right away that it was like, there's a whole bunch of ways you can do this. Yeah. That's why my tagline is there's no one size fits all way. It's personal and you can have your opinion, what's best for your child. And we will have our opinion about what's best for our child. And parents have to make decisions like this all the time for their children. So we just did the best we could. I I mean, of course, people get up in arms about using a pacifier or not. Don't, don't get me started on breastfeeding or not. So everybody's got their opinions one one way or the other on lots of parenting topics and yeah, when you get into something like this, a diagnosis, then the stakes are a little higher and people need to uh, justify their decision sometimes by coming off as a little bit judgmental of other decisions. Yes. That's a challenge. How do you navigate? You're saying it's not really a problem with your platform, but has that happened in real life? Only, only a very few times. I can count on one hand how many times someone's questioned our decision and I just won't entertain it because it's like anything that you feel very strongly philosophically about. You're not going to change that person's mind. Likewise, I would never tell somebody who made a different choice than we did that what they did was wrong. I would never. I I just wouldn't say you should do it our way. And that's why I'm very careful on my platform to say, this is the choices we made for our specific, and my children are same parents. They're very different kids and how they've responded to their hearing loss has been very different. I mean, there's commonality, but just their experience is very different. What has been, do you think, the biggest challenge in their educational journey or their social journey that has been affected by the hearing journey as well? Oh, that's a big question. I think it's changed, obviously, from preschool to middle school. They've been to, like I said, they've, we've moved six times and they've been school aged. One, two, three, four. They're at their fifth school. So it has changed. Probably, and this is something we were told would happen, and it I have seen it happen, is because it's an invisible disability, and we use the word disability, we'll interchange it with, okay, it's an invisible special need, invisible need other than typical, other than their device they're wearing. They are typical children. They look typical. They act typical. So people forget very quickly. Family members, you know. So I think having to constantly advocate and remind people that, no, I know it looks like my kindergartner doesn't need to sit in the front row because she looks like she's back in the back engaged and following along, but she cannot hear everything you're saying if she's in the back row. She has to be in the front row. Cause I had a teacher say, well, she follows along just fine. I'm like, how, can, how do you know that? Do you think the kindergartner is going to raise her hand and say, I missed every other word you said? No. And that we should not put that on a child. Yeah. 
And even if she maybe is hearing, how hard is she working to get that? Yeah. So it's just constant with coaches, with teachers, with childcare, with family. And I know people mean well. Generally, it's not done to somehow exclude or not provide access. It's just they forget. My son's, one of his coaches, he plays tackle football and lacrosse. And one of the coaches was yelling at him from the sidelines. And I could see him getting frustrated that my son, who's now like 50 yards away, cannot hear. And I said, I'm thinking, okay, I get it. I get why that's frustrating. And then I also thought to myself, and guess what? You're not allowed to get frustrated that he can't hear. Like you just aren't allowed (laughs) to be frustrated at him. You can be frustrated at the situation. So socially, like I said, both my kids are very different. One picks up on social cues way better, more visual, kind of more in touch with nuances. And one is more kind of a wallflower, more sits back, not looking to be right in the mix. And I think partly that's because the social settings are challenging. So more one-on-one or small group versus big group settings. And it's kind of just learning that that's kind of what works for each kid. And then also who knows, even with hearing that might've been their style anyways, we'll never know. But I know with language getting more sophisticated into the teen years and how teens are lots of groups and quiet talkers or funny talking and turning their heads and sarcasm and innuendos and all that. I think it's way more complex to follow along socially. Yeah. So both my kids are really good friends to others. They're kind and they have empathy and they can be jerks. Yes. And uh, because they're typical kids, right? (laughs) Not saying these are not perfect children, but they're good friends. I think they make good friends, but that's just me as their mom. Yeah, that's wonderful. So lastly, I'd like to ask you to speak to our audience and tell them any advice, any wisdom that you want to share from your experiences to anyone who's just starting out or, you know, wherever they are in their journey, what you'd share with them. Okay. Well, first I want to say thank you for giving me this opportunity to come on your show and talk about this topic. You can tell it's something I I get passionate about and uh, clearly turning it into a platform like I have because I'm a writer by trade. That's what I went to college for. And it's funny how my story ended up taking this sharp turn, my kids being born with hearing loss. But I think one of the reasons, there's a couple reasons I wanted to write about this story. First, because our kids are doing so well, I did not want to forget about where where they started and how hard it was in those early days. Because you know, with time, you start to get amnesia about the hard things. And so I wanted to have it just for myself, even just because we used to celebrate every little success, you know, turning and saying, I hear a bird. I mean, that's jumping up and down kind of stuff, right? Mom, I heard a bird. Um, So I didn't want to take for granted how far they had come. And then secondly, I share with parents, what would I have wanted to know when my kids were born? And I would have wanted to know that it's going to be okay. Their okay is going to look different than my okay, but your kid, your child is going to be able to be happy and have a a rich, full life. And it'll look different than my child's life, but anything is possible. And to set the bar high, 
That's what we were told early on. And it stuck with me is measure your child against all children when it comes to academics, athleticism, whatever. They're not just doing well for a deaf or hard of hearing child. They're doing well compared to all children and just keep setting the bar high and they're going to rise and exceed it. So that's what I, that's what I want parents to know. Um, and tell everyone where they can read more about you and your story. Okay. Well, I'm, my battle call is my blog. Same, my website, I just launched my new website in January, which was super exciting. There's parent resources, videos, all my writing, t-shirts, like fun stuff on there. And then my daughter and I wrote a book, a children's book. So it's in my daughter's voice and it's her journey. And so we're looking for an agent. It's a children's book. It's the sweetest book. It's funny and inspirational and it's called Hearing Schmearing. And we're looking to get that published. She's ready to go on her book tour already. She's like, I need my professional photos done because I'm going to be, you know, when they have me on the Today Show, I'm going to, you know, need to have my headshots. But um, so my battle call across Instagram, all plat- all the social platforms I'm there. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Valley. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you so, so much for listening to the end. I hope that you gained from this interview a little bit more about the texture of life and how the decisions that need to be made around the cochlear implant are big decisions. And as time goes on and as your children grow, then things will be different and new challenges will arise and you'll have to learn and adapt to those kinds of situations. So I really want to hear your experience, your questions, your journey, your review, whatever it is that you took away from this episode, I really want to know about it. So you can always DM me on Instagram at All About Audiology Podcast. You can find us in the Facebook group and join the Facebook community, the All About Audiology group, and I look forward to hearing from you. An upcoming episode is all about speech therapy, and I have a very fond place in my heart for all my speech-language pathology friends out there and colleagues, so stay tuned for upcoming episodes. I really appreciate you listening, and thank you for sharing the show. I'm Dr. Lilach Saperstein, and this is the All About Audiology Podcast.